Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. You've reached episode 18 with Dr. Christine Pohl. Really looking forward to sharing the conversation with you. Before I do, wanted to say a thank you uh, for all of our listeners, those of you who have been with us from the beginning, really started this year, uh, and those of you who just started tuning in. Thank you so much for carving out time in your day or night uh, to listen to this content. Hopefully you're enjoying it, and uh, we've gotten some great feedback and even great critical feedback thus far, and we appreciate it. want to make a final plug for our GoFundMe as we are looking to raise a little bit of money to support both our uh, hosting efforts, uh, the the monthly subscription that we pay to Podbean, as well as uh, looking to upgrade some of our equipment to enhance your listening experience. Please check out the GoFundMe if you're willing to take an extra minute. It's on the show notes in our Podbean page. And uh, again, thank you so much for the great feedback. Glad we can bring you this conversation and many more to come. Enjoy. friends. Welcome to the Laity Podcast, and uh, great to have you here. I'm here with Stephen, as always, and a very special guest joining us from Wilmore, Kentucky. We have Dr. Christine Pohl with us today. Dr. Pohl, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, coming coming on board with us and and having this conversation. Just by way of kind of introduction, so for those who, who don't know uh, Dr. Christine Pohl. She is, well, most recently or very recently retired, but spent the last 29 years as a professor of social ethics at Asbury Theological Seminary there in Wilmore, Kentucky, just uh, south of Lexington. And uh, doc, we, we know Dr. Pohl from her work and what I imagine most people know her uh, from is her work on hospitality. Um, and so she's written a, a number of books uh, on the subject, and most notably, and one that we know well, uh, Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition, and uh, other books, including Living into Community and Friendship at the Margins. So uh, we're we're so excited to have you on, uh, Dr. Paul. And, and I know we've been looking through some and, and digesting your material for a number of years. And so it's just it's just great to, to have you on board here. So thank you right up front. I understand this is your maiden podcast voyage. This is, I this, think this it's, is it's not first. my first interview, but it's, I think it's my first podcast. I think so. Yes. That's excellent. Well, listen, if you want to add this to your CV or, you know, that's <laughs> oh, yes, it'll be at the top. Yes. <laughs> I don't know this at all. That's great. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Pope, for taking time with us tonight. Sure. Um, can you? I know Andrew gave a little bit of introduction, and but can you can you talk a little bit about just how you got interested in hospitality and how? I mean, it really seems like that that's a lot of what your your life's work has been dedicated to. And so, how how did that come about? Right. Um, I think it it's true that that has been the center of sort of my research and probably writing, although it broadened out a bit into community a little bit more generally or some of the other practices in the last year. But in terms of hospitality, which was my entry point, um, I think it's partly um, coming out of the experience of both being a guest and stranger in different settings and reflecting on it early in life, and then um, having the chance to 
host or welcome various groups of people over the years. So my initial encounters with people with disabilities, then a lot of work with refugees, um, people who are homeless, and so on. So sort of the groups that are often pushed to the margins. And I, I think that provoked a lot of reflection. Um, my grandmother was incredible with hospitality, and so I, I had her as a model from the time I was little. But I think it was the experience particularly of working with refugees that prompted a need to think more deeply about hospitality, and that that was the experience just prior to seminary. So I started reflecting on social ministry more generally and encountered a book when I was at seminary, you may be familiar with it, called Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed by Philip Haley. And it's a book about uh, the village of Le Chambon in France during World War II that rescued Jews. And he was the first person I ever read who actually put sort of hospitality in a significantly moral context. And um, that prompted me thinking a little bit more deeply um, about hospitality as a, a kind of a significant practice rather than sort of the entertaining model that we usually think about hospitality mm. fitting. And um, then I went to um, do my PhD, and um, I was doing it in ethics, and we kept talking about things about recognition and membership and whose voice is heard and who's valued and who gets to participate and so on. And I kept thinking, surely the church has done what you know, dealt with these issues before. And I started to wonder if um, if you could kind of explore the New Testament and see if the church had, in fact, dealt with issues of who gets recognized, who gets, you know, to speak in, in community, who, who's valued, and so on. And, you know, sure enough, there's material in the New Testament about Jews and Greeks struggling and rich and poor and so on. And so, as I was going through um, the program, I, I sort of entertained the idea of actually doing a dissertation that tried to trace out the history of hospitality in the Christian tradition. And fortunately, I had a committee that was willing to let me try that because we didn't know what we'd find. Mm. And um, so, I did. And I did find a story. And I was able to do the dissertation and stopped... Um, gosh, um, at the 18th century, because sort of the story was told and the, the moral understanding of hospitality was pretty much gone by then. And when I did Making Room, I brought it up to the present, and to do that interviewed eight communities of hospitality, because if you're going to recover a practice in the present, um, you have to talk to people who are doing it, because the context is so different from when biblical people were doing hospitality and so on. So that's sort of the story. And then over the years, it's just been a topic that keeps being relevant, I think, and people struggle with and know is important. So I get to think about it a lot. Hmm. What, what is it like? What is it like for you to, to sort of reach this point? I mean, in, in your career, you've done a lot of great writing um, uh, on this on this topic and to retire in the year, uh, in 2017, you know, with, or I guess 2018, holy cow. 2018. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Steve. 2018, yeah. Um, what is it like now to sort of, to be on this end, and then in our context? I mean, like, like what you're talking about, refugees, uh, you know, the marginalized. I mean, it seems like we're in the most polarized context that we've ever been, at least in my lifetime. Uh, and and your your life's work seems to be dedicated to to 
trying to bring together people to cross aisles, trying to practice hospitality, trying to create communities. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what, is that, what has that been like for you and how, how has your thinking, I guess, shifted on this over the years? I, hmm, I don't know if it's shifted as much. It certainly has become more nuanced just because of the number of conversations I've been able to have and the number of communities that I've spent time with and the questions that people have raised when I've spoken and then there's been questions and answers. But I would say that this particular context has made the discussions about hospitality much more urgent. Um, I don't think there's ever been a period where it's been so... Um, sort of under siege, um, where, um, but at the same time, where people are realizing how important it is. And so, having worked on it for so long gives me a certain, um, I don't know, situation out of which to speak, certain context out of which I can speak and address some of the issues and certainly respond to Christians who are struggling with questions about immigration or race or whatever and um, talk about how the people in the tradition have responded over the years. Hmm. I have a quick question. You mentioned a little bit back in your history, you mentioned you're interacting with or working with, with refugees and how that was integral and kind of, you know, your focus. Was that something that you you more or less happened upon? Was it a specific ministry that you were stepping into? I'm just curious kind of how, how that experience in particular fell in your lap or maybe that you intentionally walked into. I suppose it was a combination like much of life where it's partly you walk into it and partly it just kind of falls on you. Um, I was part of a church that was involved in refugee resettlement in New York. And um, actually, in the end, we were a subcontractor for World Relief, which is a um, puts us in a different status from regular church resettlements. So in the context of, in the time of just a couple of years, we resettled 400 refugees. So that's a lot of refugees for a church of about 150 um, people. And so wow. all of the issues became much more intense and just the practice of hospitality and all of its wonder and goodness and difficulty all kind of rained on us at once. And it was wonderful and extremely hard. Yep. And it, that did leave me with a lot of questions and um, sort of launched. Then uh, shortly after that, probably two years later, I went to seminary. What, what do you, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, so I, th this idea of this church of a hundred some odd people resettling 400. I mean, that's a killer stat, right? Like, you don't, <laughs> you don't hear that one most people, most people don't do that. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, how does that? What did that look like functionally? Like when you say resettle, like can you give us a snapshot well, of what? That's a technical term, right? Okay, okay. We were we were resettling people, so they would they would be brought in um, from refugee camps by World Relief, and they would send them to us, and we would find them apartments and help them enroll in school and programs and get jobs and so on. So that was a time when the government was more um, supportive of refugees. And there were more resources for them than there is now, or than there has been, actually, it, for a while. Did you guys decide to get involved in that? Like, was the church sort of launched as a, hey, we're going to have this sort of hybrid church, no. church uh, resettlement thing? Or did you guys discern this together and then somehow come to consensus and, and 
and move together as a community on this? I think, um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think we certainly never set out to become this fairly significant operation for just a few years. I mean, it didn't last over decades or something, mm-hmm. but it it lasted while there were certain refugee crises. Um, and no, we were just kind of an unusual church. It was a, a restart of a church. And it was interesting because it was a mixed race, um, mixed ethnicity church to begin with um, on the south shore of Long Island. And so then welcoming refugees made it increasingly like a little UN. I mean, it was really, it was incredibly diverse. Wow. And I say in making room, it was just, you know, we were singing hymns in five languages before that was popular, just because that was part of who we were. So, um, yeah, no, we didn't set out to do it. We did set out to be responsible Christians. I think we were shaped. I mean, this is this is the 70s, long before you guys were born. Um, so, um, late 70s. And um, I think we were deeply affected by the um, Christian um, weakness in terms of responses during the Holocaust. And it was like, we were not going to do that. We were not going to be those people. Um, and so that was that really was part of it. We were in a um, yeah in a period where it really mattered. It was people left in refugee camps or um, seeking asylum, and so we were able to help. So we did. That's man, I, I love that. That's really uh, that's really inspiring. Um, I, I'd love to hear more. You, you've made this distinction a few times uh, with hospitality. Um, as a, as a moral issue. And I think for a lot of our listeners in our time and place, uh, when they hear us talking about hospitality, I suspect that what's just going to come up to come up, come to their mind naturally as a product of their culture isn't really what, what you're talking about. Can you talk a little bit about how, um, hospitality is used today or, uh, and, and how it's shifted uh, over the years? Sure. Um, yeah, this is an ongoing challenge, I think. And and part of the reason I stayed with the terminology was because I wanted to be able to get back into the tradition. But, you know, in, in many ways, hospitality for a long time was emptied of, of moral meaning. And mostly it just meant entertaining family and friends. Um, if, uh, if For many people, it's the hospitality industry or it's um, coffee and donuts or the parking committee at church. Um, it is though. I mean, if you see hospitality committee in church, it's potlucks, coffee, coffee and donuts and parking. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I think in the last couple decades, there's also been something of, I mean, there's a lot of interest in hospitality. So there has been some recovery of it as a, as a moral notion. And I think, um, it never was entirely lost, so that in the monastic tradition, it always had a richer meaning. And um, when the Catholic worker used the language, they it was infused with moral and theological significance. And I, I would say that the Catholic worker movement, you know, in some ways was not a huge movement, but it has inspired a lot of people. And so they, they had a hand in it. Other communities... Um, also who are comfortable using the term. And I think, you know, the, the one place where hospitality has stayed significant actually is in issues around asylum and refugees, where it's sort of connected to sanctuary and so on. But, um, 
yeah, I think for the most part, it just, you know, as Henry Nouwen said, it conjures up images of, um, what is it, bland conversation um, and tea parties and things or whatever. Um, so, yeah, uh, it just historically up until, I would say you can actually trace it right to kind of the end of the Middle Ages. It was a fairly significant moral concept. And then it starts getting emptied of um, major significance. Do you mind, can you expound on that when you talk about, just for our listeners' sake and for our sake as well, like when you talk about it being, the having that sort of moral, that core moral framework, even throughout the history, like what did that mean versus this? Call, the idea gonna, of entertainment. Correct. Sure. Um, yeah, hospitality always meant um, sort of welcoming family and friends. I mean, even in the ancient tradition, it involved that. But if you, um, especially if you look at the New Testament and the the word um, that's most commonly used for hospitality in the New Testament is phylloxenia, which means love of strangers. So right there you have that emphasis mm. directed towards strangers. Um, so it's not kin. It's not family and friends. It's bigger than that. And in the ancient world, before there were restaurants and hotels, people depended on the kindness of strangers. So hospitality was a form of mutual aid. But in almost every culture, it was a major moral practice. I mean, if you didn't practice hospitality, that that, that was a very bad thing. Um, and if you did, that oftentimes did link you in some way with whatever the gods were. Um, but it's in Christianity that hospitality takes on this richer meaning. And um, I think where Jesus says, um, there's there's two passages in the um, New Testament that are particularly crucial. And one is Matthew 25, where Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And there, that changes everything in the sense that the possibility that the stranger who comes to us is in some way um, Jesus is coming to us. Mm-hmm. That has wound its way through the tradition for the entire um, two millennia. Um, the other one is Luke 14, where Jesus says, when you give a dinner party, you know, he's talking to the Pharisees and so on. When you give a dinner party, don't invite your friends and family um, who can repay you, but invite um, the poor and lame and so on who cannot repay you, and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's a really different notion of hospitality, which is choose the choose the people who are the least likely to look like they can repay you. God will repay you. In God's economy, that's um, that's hospitality. And those two passages, plus a number of other ones and lots of Old Testament materials, really shape the tradition in the first, I would say, five or six centuries of the church. So that by the time you get to people like John Chrysostom and Lactantius and Jerome, they're basically arguing that what's distinctive about Christian hospitality is that it does welcome the least of these, the people who don't seem to have anything to return. But in in those centuries, it wasn't that you just did it because it was the right thing to do. It was richer than that. It was more that welcoming those people was kind of a means of grace. It was a blessing to the person who got to do it because God had already welcomed us. And so, in a sense, we were participating in God's welcome, God's hospitality. Um, so for the wow. early church, not doing it for to get something in return, that's very different from Greek and Roman understandings, which did hospitality, offered hospitality 
explicitly to worthy recipients. And worthy recipients were people who could repay um, because it was a way of making uh, developing relationships. And what Jesus is teaching, I think, and what the church taught was, um, yeah, I mean, but but offer this these connections to the people who are usually left out. Mm-hmm. And don't worry about advantage. In fact, don't do it to gain advantage. Don't do it for ambition. And that's really the language of those writers in that period. So I would say that that's that that so sort of what I call like a normative core emerges um, in those first centuries um, that says Christian hospitality is different, and it makes room for the ones that are usually left out. Hmm. And so when you're when you're at a kind of inception point, you obviously had you had finished your dissertation. I'm thinking. It, when this is becoming making room, which is what late nineties is that right? Ninety nine, two thousand. It came out in ninety nine, so I was working on it for um, between like ninety four and ninety nine. Yeah, got it. And, and you use this fascinating word, recovering, right? As like recovering mm-hmm. hospitality, <laughs> and you shared you you hit a, you hit this a tiny bit here, but give us a little bit more into that the context when you're writing that. It, and that you know ultimately comes out like in the late nineties. Like, what are you what what are you seeing in the church in within Christianity? How, where hospitality was or wasn't being represented? Like, what what was the context in which this was this was coming out? Why was recovering kind of the the key word there? Well, I think it was key because at that point I had already sort of been able to articulate this distinctive character of, of Christian hospitality from those early centuries. But I think the other thing um, was a desire to give practitioners of hospitality today a place to locate their work. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but people are doing hospitality all the time, right? They're making room for strangers, they're caring for homeless people, they're welcoming refugees, but they don't they don't see it as part of a bigger tradition where people have already struggled with these issues. They've dealt with them. They've worked through them. I mean, it's it's amazing to read stuff from the fourth century where people are worried about whether strangers are deserving or undeserving or, um, you know, the same kinds of conversations that we have today. And so um, I remember working, um, doing a workshop once with um, a, a group of actually with Salvation Army officers and um, they were they were wonderful. I mean, these are people who do hospitality all the time. And um, after I had done sort of traced out the tradition, and afterwards one of the guys came up to me and said, "You mean all those beds and breakfasts meant something?" And I was hmm. just blown away because I mean, if I had written the book just for him, it would have been enough. Wow. Because here's somebody who for probably 30 years had been doing beds and breakfasts for people who needed it. But he and he knew that it mattered for them and he knew that he was doing something God wanted. Um, but he didn't have a sense that it, it was part of this incredible tradition of the church that going back right to Jesus, actually right back to um, the early Israel, um, practice welcoming, making a place for strangers, and um, seeing it as part of of God's call on on the people of God. Mm. Wow, man! You know, it, it makes me think about how that the verse you read earlier was it Luke seventeen on Jesus Luke fourteen twelve to fourteen. Um, I to be honest with you, 
I mean, I'm, I'm really trying to reach back in the archives here, and I can't th- recall a single time <laughs> that I really ever heard a sermon. Like, like I mean, th- th- that's a pretty clear, straightforward calling. Seems like right. It's not. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some kind of gymnastics you can get involved in, but I, I, I've I've heard like the Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats, but it's usually with a spin on you know evangelism and 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 trying to. Uh, when 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 converts and whatnot, but I, I I literally just can't recall anybody preaching just that. Hey, find people who are not like you and have them in your home. Because like and 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 build a friendship there. That's just wow. It's 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 pretty explicit. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> you can't get you have to choose not to see it. I think. Yeah. Do you get feedback? Have you gotten feedback over the years of folks that have? have kind of gone head first in your material and then begun practicing these kind of things and actually done, you know, just that? Is this the, the kind of feedback that, that you've received from practitioner practitioners? Well, practitioners are already doing it. So I think, <laughs> Good um, right. I mean, they're, they're already doing it. Sometimes I think the conversations, um, because I've talked to so many people, sometimes I can I can be an encouragement to them or help them kind of process some of the difficulties that they've encountered that they think are that it's only about, you know, they're the only ones who've ever struggled with this. And in fact, it's much bigger for people who haven't. Yes. I mean, I can remember a great story I was teaching. Actually, it was an Asbury class in Florida. I was doing an ethics of hospitality class. And one of the guys was really he was a, a brand new Christian. But he was already in seminary, which was already a little bit crazy. But um, he took the material, and he he had been assigned a parsonage. And he went home that week and opened it to homeless people. And I was like, wow. oh, my. And I was just, you know, hoping that it would be okay. And it worked out. <laughs> it worked out very well. But I... It doesn't usually happen that it's that immediate a response, but people wow. do try to find ways to be creative, to um, you know build on what they're already doing, um, to um, find ways just to make make room for other folks who are usually left out or overlooked. Hmm. What do, What do you say to people? When they hear this and they say, okay, uh, yes, I agree, hospitality is important, but let's be clear here, like what's most important is, and it's something else. How do you respond to people when when they bring up this concern of engaging in hospitality with literally no attachment to any sort of outcome other than the connection that can happen in that relationship? Right. I think that hospitality is better understood as a way of life than as a task, for one thing, I think it's easy to see it as duty or something that we should do, um, and and then it becomes just one more thing in a parade of things that we should be doing as as good Christians or whatever. I think the best way to understand it is either as a practice or as a way of life, in which that's simply who we are and that's what we do, and everything happens in that context of welcome. So I, I would not want to try to sort of line up evangelism and discipleship and hospitality as if they're entirely discrete things that can be um, prioritized. I think I would just say, no, actually, and I would say that about evangelism also. In a sense, that's a way of life. You have the good news to share with people. Hospitality, in the end, is the best context in which to share the gospel with people. Mm. So, 
it's not it, it doesn't have to be competing. Um, and I, I, I think people with already terribly busy schedules, um, hospitality can seem really burdensome if they see it as just another task that they should be doing, a good thing they should be doing. I think you have to really switch your way of thinking about it. Hmm. It's it's hard though because you know to make that a, a way of life. I mean, inevitably, and you mentioned this in your book, it requires choosing a different rhythm of life. Right. right. Like you, you may, maybe maybe you can't do piano lessons and swimming and soccer and these things for the kids or whatever, and live a life of hospitality. I mean, like you have to make decisions about what to do and what not to do. And it's and I think that's what I loved about your book is it just it was really challenging to me uh, to. To just, um, and I guess, to reassess all the things that I've already said yes to. Yeah. Mm. Because in a lot of ways, those commitments that I've said yes to, I mean, I'm saying no to these people in the margins, whether directly or or, or not. Right. But, yes. Yes. It does make sense. Although, again, I think that there's lots of ways in which you can incorporate hospitality into the things that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, if your friends have, I mean, if your children have friends from soccer or whatever, and you, you know, you welcome those kids into your life, um, that that almost the, the soccer becomes a threshold from which you begin to develop relationships with these kids and so on. So it's a, it's a little bit, rather than seeing them as kind of like a nuisance or something else you should do, mm-hmm. you know, see them as an opportunity to um, welcome into your life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, uh, Andrew, do you have another question you want to go? No, go ahead, Stephen. I, 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 probably, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about how, how did the church understand hospitality in the context of the kingdom? Um, we're on, we're on exactly what I was going to ask. Doing a, dude, I read your mind. We're doing a series of interviews. I also read your mind on what shirt to wear, apparently. So there you yeah, go. You did. Uh, <laughs> match. Yeah. Uh, Every day. <laughs> um, how did the early church think about the kingdom? And, and maybe the better question is, what was the question the church was asking about the kingdom to which hospitality was the obvious answer? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I think that, I, I, I don't know immediately how to answer that, but what I would say is that What you do find in the early tradition is reflections on the welcome of God, um, the ways in which God, in a sense, has made room for us um, in community, and that, in a sense, then hospitality simply makes sense in God's kingdom and God's economy. Um, that's the nature. So the the generosity of hospitality, the grace, the gratitude, all of that just kind of fits in with um, the kingdom practices, kingdom values, and so on. It seems to me it's a pretty central practice mm-hmm. of the kingdom. And in fact, in terms of a kind of a kingdom witness to the world, you have the early church arguing that their practices of hospitality, the fact that they welcomed people different from themselves into community as brothers and sisters, was proof of the truth of the gospel, which is a pretty amazing claim. Wow. Um, but that's what Justin Martyr argues, um, as do some of the other early apologists. So I think they really saw the welcome that they offered as an expression of the ways in which God's kingdom 
um, little bits of God's kingdom, in a sense, were manifest, and that they were their lives because they belonged to God really looked different. Hmm. Wow. Why is it that? Why is it that we we live in a time where? when we think about the evidence, like conversations about evidence for the gospel mm-hmm. aren't generally conversations about hospitality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the silence, right? And, it's right. Interesting. and your point is, um, <laughs> right. Um, well, no, that's, that's true. I mean, I, I, I would be wary of imagining that hospitality could ever be sufficient as an argument, you know, as an apologetic. But right. but words without hospitality, without the practices of the Christian life, and, and I would say particularly without that kind of welcome and um, fidelity and so on, without those elements, the words are, are not very, um, not certainly not as compelling as they could be. Um, because people really want to see, are hungry to see the words of life embodied in life in in a community. Um, so I think that we have imagined that we can sort of argue people into the kingdom. You know that we could, if we give them sufficiently convincing proofs that they'll be persuaded. But I think most people are persuaded by the the way in which the truth of the gospel is lived out. Mm. So they need words because they won't know what it is without words. But words aren't sufficient. Mm. And I think the life of hospitality is is pretty powerful. One one of the shifts you mentioned in your book is that uh, hospitality in the early, I guess in the, in the very early years of the church was, was generally like practice... Uh, there, there was an individual responsibility to 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 live that way, um, and and you mentioned the shift where hospitality, like like providing needs for the strangers, uh, or you know feeding the poor, that there was sort of an institutionalization mm-hmm. that occurred where like there were there there become systems and processes, and hey, you know here's where you go to get that need met, and it was it was no longer in the house of like in someone's house. Um, what effect did that shift have on uh, how hospitality was lived out or, or 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 understood by the church? Yeah, yeah, that's a it's a good question. It's a complicated question, I think, and um, it's it, it's a it's kind of a a tragic part of the story because I think the earliest institutionalization of care, which you actually see with Basel in the fourth century, when he founds the first hospital. They thought it was a wonder of the world. They thought it was fantastic because that way hospitality was more predictable, more people could be helped. And so there were real ironies in the whole story. I mean, they were doing it so that more people could be helped. They had more resources to work with. There was a terrible need. I mean, Basel does this during a great famine. People are starving. He gathers them together and, you know, sort of makes arrangements for them. So by that time, you know, the church was was 
essentially too big to meet in households, or at least the way that they were structuring it. You know, the early church meets in how very early church meets in households, but they've already moved to separate buildings, and that's this is the beginnings of monasticism as well. And so there there is a move toward in, institutionalization in all sorts of ways of of building. Um, organizations in a sense but I don't there I don't think it was cynical in fact I I think most of the time it wasn't it was a genuine desire to be helpful it's just that it had unintended consequences and they were pretty significant because it moves hospitality um, I mean people continued to do hospitality in the home but it tended to be less and less with poor people and then by the time you get to the middle ages and so on sick people are cared for or not in in hospitals and so on I, I mean they don't they don't get very good medical care but if they're poor that's that's where they land um, I think part of the consequence that wasn't anticipated is the, what I talk about is, is kind of the flattening of roles. So that where before, if you welcome people into sort of a uh, the, the intersection of household and church, so where churches are meeting in homes and so on, you know, in a sense, God is the host and everybody's a guest. So the guest, I mean, the, the householder would still also be a host. The teacher might be a host as well, or the pastor or whatever. But in a sense, guest and host roles get a little bit more mixed up then. When you move into an institution, you have providers and recipients, and you don't get those roles mixed up. And so they're in a sense flattened, and people mm. are extracted from ordinary life. They lose their connections with ordinary life, and they become simply recipients that are defined by their need. And that's in a sense what we've inherited with institutionalization. And so lots of the communities of hospitality try to push back against that, where they don't define people by their need. They, you know, they're first a person. They're not just an embodied need. Um, right. They're a person. Um, and so then, you know, there, there are ways in which they might need help, but there are also ways that they bring um, gifts and so on. So it's a very complicated, very long, painful story in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm not sure that they could entirely be helped just based on population and responsibilities and so on, but it was a complicated consequence. Yeah. One of the consequences that you mentioned in the book, I mean, is that as is provider – uh, I guess almost like provider patient, yeah, provider recipient relationship uh, is is created as a result of the institutionalization of of the hospitality. Um, it seems like just in, in, I mean inevitably that creates a hierarchy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So what what happens and why is that so important? Why what why is it so significant that and when when it becomes professional, when it becomes not that it's necessarily bad because obviously like more people were getting we're getting medical care taken care of. I'm a nurse. I mean, so like there's, you know, we have our, our healthcare system is, is built mm -hmm. on some of these uh, foundations, but why, why is it so significant that the, the hierarchy comes into, um, comes into play when, when, when we, when we boil things down into those different roles? I think it probably depends on how totalizing the institution is. I mean, in, in healthcare, Unless you're very sick, you're not you're not permanently defined by your need, by what's wrong with you, right? Sometimes you are, where people essentially talk about your disease as if that defines you, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think 
that in these institutions of care and so on, like orphanages or homes for widows or homes for poor people or something, the, the what they didn't have was what defined them. And there wasn't really a way of getting out of that. It's sort of a permanent guest status hmm. um, where somebody else is always the host and you're never looked at as someone who has something to offer. And that is very dehumanizing. Um, is that getting at what your question was? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you're, it's, it's making me think of this quote. Um, I, I had it marked here in your book. It says, uh, you're, you're reciting Christosom here. Is that how you say it? Christosom? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Chrysostom, Chrysostom, I don't know. That one. He's not around to tell us. Well, he says, he says that the man who wishes to exempt himself from, provi- from providing for his neighbors should deface himself and declare that he no longer wishes to be a man. For as long as we are human creatures, we must contemplate as in a mirror our face and those who are despised, exhausted, and who groan under their burdens. Um, that quote, I mean, it's actually Calvin who said that. That's Calvin? Oh, okay. It's Excellent. Calvin. Thank you. Yeah, That's I saw that. It is Calvin. Yeah. Wow. Um, Calvin, I mean, Chrysostom says things like that, but that's actually Calvin. Calvin is incredibly articulate about the value of the stranger. It's remarkable. But that's one of the quotes. Yeah. Hmm. So interesting. Because like by the end of his, by the end of his life, wasn't he basically like a grumpy old man? About <laughs> no, I think that, that he got that some bad press there. He did yeah. get some pretty <laughs> bad press. God, yes. I haven't read much of him yet. I'll, I'll grant that for sure. Hmm. I haven't read much of his work yet. So well, he's he's interesting on hospitality. Um, obviously, there were some issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there were some big issues, but he was actually more hospitable quite often than most of the people of Geneva. Um, so, but but he does have this whole um, set of writings on um, the value of the stranger and how if you know if you don't <sighs> that you're not a human being if you don't care about other human beings. Yeah. So how do we, well, what, what, what are the recipients of our hospitality have to teach us? Like what, what is it that we need to learn from, from seeing our own reflection in their face? I think hmm, that's a really interesting question. I think they remind us of our vulnerability and our, Um, dependence on the kindness of others, just the utter desolation sometimes that people can experience, and that all of us are only a few disasters away from that. Mm. Um, But I think the other things that they teach us are extraordinary resilience oftentimes, and um, stamina. I think they uh, so often sort of a grace under pressure and so on, but I think they also remind us of the dangers of invisibility, of not being wanted, not being needed, um, what that does to a human being over time. So I, I think it's a combination of the person bringing both the difficulties that they've faced and reminding us that those are oftentimes our difficulties also, or challenges, mm-hmm. and the, the graces and the um the faithfulness of God and their faithfulness sometimes in really appalling situations. Um, so I think, I think it cuts both ways. Um, 
the human experience of injustice, I think hospitality gives us a chance to sort of put a personal face on injustice. Um, so it's not just a program or a project. These people are not our projects. You know, they're our friends. And um, that's a pretty powerful um, way in which I think um, the people we welcome teach us. Is that? That's great. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, uh, Pete Rollins, Andrew, he's your boy. Uh, is, I think he says this. You, you can keep me honest here. Um, he mentioned that there, there's also this sort of a, like a, a prophetic witness that they provide. Like that basically we all live our lives. Like if you're, if, if, if you are the beneficiary of, you know, the system and the powers that be, everything is set up to sort of hide the bodies under the rug. You know, like we don't, we don't want to see the real consequences of, of, of the structures that we benefit from sometimes. But in, in engaging with somebody who is marginalized, it, it, it he says that it, it does kind of, it helps us, I guess, to, to recognize that this is like, for example, like vet, veteran homelessness. Uh, right. This, this is, this is, this is the product of how things have been set up. I mean, inevitably there's, there's, there's enormous, it's hugely complex, but at least just putting it all there in front of us so that we can see it and, 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 and connect with just the general, like the, the, the way in which the world is out of a line, um, of alignment you know, in, in those relationships. Does that make sense? It does. I think that's right. I think there has to be a, a willing, I mean, there are real difficulties. People resist practicing hospitality because they don't want to encounter those issues. Yeah. Um, having more resources than you need or even could possibly use in a million years is very awkward if you're welcoming people who need some of those resources. Mm. So it's, you know, I mean, you either choose to think differently about what you have or you keep them out of your life. And so I think it's possible that, um, Hospitality can be sort of the beginning of a journey toward much deeper questions about justice issues and distribution issues and so on. It really, I think it could be terrifying if there weren't a community within which to process it. I think people would back away from it pretty quickly um, if they didn't have a way, you know, in the church or among a community um, to kind of make sense of it and figuring out ways of moving toward a, a different kind of lifestyle. Well, that's pretty challenging for people. Yeah. Well, one thing, so we just had uh, Dr. Richard back on uh, a few weeks ago, and we talked about hospitality. And one of the things he brought up that I found, was found fascinating, he said, you know, what can be challenging in a church context is often in his experience when you bring up an issue of let's say immigration or 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 refugees, um, it can immediately be perceived as well. Now we're getting political. Now we're getting social. That all of a sudden guards go up or something immediately sort of uh, almost like a wall or or a sort of a, a, a judgment comes in place. Oh, you said immigration. This is going to get political or that's a political issue or. Or you're talking about the margins and the poor, like th this is, and it quickly can become 
at times a, you know, it's almost as if he uses language of it's almost as our, as if our allegiance is deeper to kind of political party, um, than it is, you know, to, to Jesus and to this call hospitality or to, you know, what he calls this transgressive table or transgressive communities. Um, my question is, in today's climate, when we talk about in kind of a, a Trump era, uh, amongst other things, but when we talk about hospitality, we talk about welcoming the stranger, but we also are, are faced with these questions of justice and um, in some cases, policy and immigration and these things. What is your experience kind of navigating, you know, in those discussions and navigating those discussions while not while not losing hearers or or uh, kind of navigating that, polit- you know, the political climate, if that makes any sense? Like, how do you sort of draw a distinction? It's fundamentally a Christian issue before it's a, a quote, political issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. It is a political issue. And I think we just have to deal with that. Um <laughs> Um, but can you expound on that? Yeah, well, because I, I mean, I'm with you. Immigration <laughs> and refugees are political issues, and uh, we have to. Uh, I mean, yes, I think the problem is that Christians are confused about where their primary allegiance is, and so my way of doing uh, approaching it and with these issues, I think, is that I would start with the biblical text. I mean, I think Christians need to be reminded of who we are, mm-hmm. and um, who we are is pretty powerful. I mean, as a, as a Christian identity, that will take us quite a ways. It has helped me that I have spent so much time on hospitality in the Christian tradition. So I've got sort of the biblical material, and I have the historic, and I can say, no, this is really part of the tradition. The fact that we take care of people, that we're responsible for people who don't have enough to to make it through the day, that are stuck at borders, um, that and and we have so many resources. I mean, these are things that God is very concerned about, and expects us to respond to. So I would. I would actually start there and then move—and you can't move to policy implications directly from Scripture, but you can move to what would undergird our response to these crises, um, what what it would mean to be a Christian. Christians can have different views of how this might get worked out, but that it has to be worked out, I don't think is negotiable. Mm, We we have to take these issues seriously. Um, And in this world, we talk about institutionalization— you know, it. How do so, so? What is the response? You know, to the list, our listener, to someone that reads your book, to you know, again, in this climate where it seems you know that the good, the bad, and the ugly is ultimately going to be handled by these powers that be, be it our government or world leaders or the police or you know whoever it might be, and sort of we sort of chalk it up to the institution, both on 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 both sides of kind of the action and the inaction on our part and going, Hey, we're, you know, I, I'm not making the policy. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll vote for someone who will fix it or I'll, you know, I'll kind of put that off onto someone else rather than localizing and actually, you know, o- opening our eyes to, to what's around us. In fact, you use this language in, in your book about, you know, that there, uh, this language of the city gate where there's, there seem to be almost fewer, there are less places where, we can have these sort of, you know, spontaneous interactions with, with other people from different backgrounds, societies that we live, like there's maybe less places to get access to this now, but I'd still imagine that within our daily walks of life, there's opportunity to make, to make a connection and be able to 
do something about it in air quotes, um, personally, you know, in small ways, but how do you, what are your thoughts on that kind of the, the bigger institutions versus, you know, us as individuals actually making a difference and where we even begin? I think it's definitely a both end. Um, I think we do have to operate at the individual level um, right from the beginning of, of sort of the institutionalization of care, right with with John Chrysostom and others. They were fighting this battle of the church taking more responsibility, and he's still saying to his parishioners, but just because, you know, the church prays, does that mean you don't have to pray? Just because the church offers hospitality, does that mean you don't have to? So the emphasis on... Um, the personal, the immediate, you know, the the local, is really crucial. And I think, I think the tradition would say you miss out on the blessing if you miss out it at that level. You, the the wonderful dynamics of God's presence that you're sort of dealing with some kind of um, sacred um, thing. It's it's pretty wonderful, and you miss that if you're not doing it at a personal level. A personal level, I mean, it's pretty clear in something like refugees that um, if there's not a government policy that welcomes them, there aren't going to be any refugees to welcome. So you have mm. to be attentive also at the at the higher institutional levels on some of these issues, or there's it, it's very hard to to make. I mean, you could still make a, a small difference, but government decisions matter in people's lives, and so being attentive to those is also. Um, significant. Now, your your question about threshold spaces, it seems to me, is is, um, is another piece of that. Um, I think we we aren't attentive to those spaces where we actually encounter strangers, and they don't have to be strangers in need, but just strangers in the sense of desperate need, but just people who who need to who would benefit from the experience of welcome. And I think we have to be more intentional about seeing um, our children's school setting, our work setting, Mm. the church, um, certain kinds of programs that open into relationships as threshold places in which the first encounters with strangers can happen. Because we really can go from our homes to our work and yes. back again and not encounter unless you use public transportation in a city yeah. you don't have to encounter any strangers right wow. so you have to be kind of intentional um about putting yourself in places where you might meet people wow uh, this is this is reminding me of this quote uh i read in a article in the plow recently um i think it's charles moore here it is right here he says, how would you go about destroying community, isolating people from one another, from a shared life with others? Over 30 years ago, there's a guy named Howard Snyder, I guess. And he, he's he's about, my colleague. He's your colleague, really? <laughs> Snyder yes. is? Yeah. That's oh awesome. I, I, this, I, love, I, I love this article. I'd love to, um, I'd love to read some, some more of this person's work. But he says here, you're probably familiar with that. He says he offers a suggestion from 20, this is like 30 years ago. Uh, it says you fragment life, move people away from neighborhoods where they grow up, set people apart or further apart by giving them bigger houses and bigger yards and se- and separate the places that people work from the place they live. In other words, partition off people's lives into as many worlds as possible. That, that's his quote. And then uh, here he says, to facilitate this process, we can get everyone his or her own car, replace meaningful communication with television, and finally cut down on family size and fill people's homes with things instead. The result, and I thought that this was like just profoundly diagnostic, 
is a post-familial, disconnected culture where self is king, relationships are thin, and individuals fend for themselves. Great. God, awesome. That's a great quote. I've got I've got a reason for this guy's work. I'd love to. Maybe you could send me an email and tell me where, where to start with him. Sure. Um, so that's great. We're, we're coming up on time here. Uh, how do we? Can you? Do you have any, any any recommendations for how the church can push back against this rhythm? We're talking about how we've kind of siloed ourselves away from people in need uh, for various reasons. One of it is, I mean, convenience. Some of it also is just structurally we don't like to see people. We don't want to see people that. <laughs> who aren't like us. So how, how can the church begin to engage in behaviors, habits, um, liturgies, whatever, that will, that will be sort of a prophetic witness to a culture like that? Hmm. Well, it, it starts with us, right? And um, embodying it in our own homes, in our own lives, um, I think. But it's hard to do that alone. And so I think it involves explicit teaching in the church on the importance of the practice. I think oftentimes it involves shared meals. We haven't really talked about that, but that's such a central part of hospitality. Mm-hmm. Um, so just getting in the practice of eating together, because that's one of the things that really has been siloed off, right? We um, we don't tend to eat with people we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so creating... Uh, you know, sort of natural, not difficult, but natural context in which you might get to know neighbors or, um, you know, uh, work with another church on something that's, um, you know, maybe a church that's ethnically different from your own or whatever, and do projects together, but but not, uh, but in a way in which you're co-equals and you're sharing meals and sharing life and then doing something Um I think it is a practice that actually, um, once people do it, it uh, it reinforces itself. People want to do it um, more. Um, so I think creating threshold places, being more intentional about how we use space, how we use the church, what kinds of things are going on there where strangers might be in, um, interested in coming um just being more engaged in our particular neighborhoods as a community. I think intentional community makes hospitality much easier often because it's it involves more than just a sort of a, 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 a single couple trying to do something together or a single person trying to do something. If you have several adults, um, it makes it easier to welcome strangers. Awesome. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for, for spending this time with us. We have... Uh, I just really enjoyed talking with you. It was great to talk with you guys. Great questions. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that uh, if, if listeners want to know more, definitely check out Making Room and, and some of Dr. Pohl's other work. And while we have you, any any other resources you would point folks to in terms of books, speakers, authors, leaders, people that are that are doing this today? Oh, I think there are a lot of communities to look at. I think there are wonderful um, resources out there. People who have been extremely formative for me um, have been Jean Vanier's Community and Growth, the Larch Communities model. Um, I I think the Catholic Worker has taught me a great deal. Um, I think people who spend time in Benedictine communities oftentimes discover things about hospitality. 
oh gosh, um, a community called Good Works in Athens, Ohio, um, is really modeling a very creative and um, encouraging model of, of hospitality. So those are a few suggestions. There's lots out there at this point. Excellent. Your other books, Dr. Nepal, uh, we, we should mention would be, I think it's Friendship at the Margins. I love that one. Um, it has a lot of, you talk with practitioners and things in there as well. Uh, and then the other one is Living into Communities. And maybe we can put those in the show notes. That'd be great. Yeah, we'll add a link for sure. Thanks. Well, Dr. Pohl, thank you again for the time. I know our listeners appreciate it, and uh, we certainly did enjoy the conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime. Let's, uh, l- let's plan on reconnecting. It was very good to be with you. Thank you.